0: How do you progress from a role in journalism to be sat in the government's cabinet room at number 10 Downing Street and then progress to a mayoral leadership role in one of the UK's busiest regions? Also, how do you handle the opportunities and huge challenges faced along the way? Let's find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon. And welcome to the third episode of this brand new audio podcast series in which I talk to notable figures from a variety of different businesses and backgrounds with a view to supporting you in your personal and professional development. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Burnham. Andy was elected Mayor of Greater Manchester in 2017 and was re-elected in May 2021. Prior to being Mayor, he was MP for Lee in the north-west of England from 2001. In government, he's held ministerial positions at the Home Office, Department of Health and the Treasury. In 2008, he became Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport before returning to health as Secretary of State in 2009. You can find this series on all major streaming platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. Be sure to click on the follow or subscribe button to make sure that you don't miss out on hearing from my future guests. Please also rate and review the podcast as it really helps me understand how they're being received and also spread the word to your friends and colleagues, particularly if you're enjoying them. You can also provide feedback and learn about future episodes via Instagram, Twitter and Facebook by searching for Half Hour Mentor. My thanks go to Manchester Metropolitan University Business School for sponsoring this series and allowing all the episodes to be ad free. You can learn about their courses and superb external work that they do by following the link in the show notes. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Andy Burnham, thanks for joining Half Hour Mentor. You're welcome. It's great to be on. Thanks very much. Can you just perhaps start by telling us a little bit about what you wanted to do, perhaps in your high school years? What was the first job you wanted to to do? Oh, God, yeah. Cast
1: my mind back. This would have been... Late 70s, early 80s, a footballer was the first uh, thing. I wanted to be Bob Lashford and play for Everton. Uh, that lasted for quite a while into my high school years when I you know, didn't quite give up on it. I was actually a better cricketer than I was a footballer, actually. So I played for Lancashire Schoolboys for a little bit and um, got much closer to getting towards uh, as a career option, but that faded away. So in my sort of middle teenage years, I probably had to start thinking about you know, what was realistic. Get a proper job. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would <laughs> know, not really any strong ideas, but I was very good at Spanish when I was at school, and I started to enjoy it and thought that I might want to work in... Uh, uh, I don't know, uh, interpreting or you know, travel industry or something like that. Right. Why was that? What, what attracted you to the? I, th- I just thing? really took to Spanish when I was at school, um, and I was good at it, you know. And I, you know, kind of, um, kind of felt confident in it. So I said to my school, and I was like 15, and we used to do work experience of the old type, you know, two weeks away at a yeah. workplace. And I said this: I wanted to you know, use my language, you know, my language skills or interest. Uh, and what came back was two weeks at Thomas Cook's in St. Helen's, where i didn't utter a word of Spanish uh, <laughs> to the people who came through the door uh God bless them, they tried the school but i, I you know it wasn't quite what I had in mind um but it it did definitely get over to me that I didn't want to work in a shop in St Helens, so I suppose all experience is valuable.
0: So obviously you had a, an interest developed in politics at some stage, uh, from you know, from looking at your career as it's gone through, when did that manifest itself? Well I guess my interest in politics was growing through that that period, um, the, the
1: kind of time I've just described was around the time of the miners' strike, so I was mm. at school in uh, Newtonley Willows, which was very close to Parkside Colliery, so it was... Mm. A kind of mining connected area uh that was quite a kind of vivid time you know many of my friends their dads were miners and you know that was a big topic of conversation um and if I kind of then go through my sort of secondary school years going in towards university um Hillsborough happened in the late 80s and that had a big impact on me because of my interests and my uh friendship groups and so I guess what was happening was I was becoming more um aware of unfairness injustice uh, around and when I went to Cambridge University because in the end I did I I got to Cambridge it it brought over to me the sense of this country is two worlds there's one world that I've grown up in and there's hang on a minute there's a different world here (laughs) and I couldn't quite relate one to the other and um that kind of sense of two worlds, people living different lives, you know, one much more privileged than the other, kind of came through in that period when I was at university and then going beyond that, uh, I, I started to
0: become quite political, I guess, in my early 20s. OK, so did that um, desire, if you like, develop during your university years to, to think about the sort of the political aspects, did that open your eyes at that stage? I had been a member of the Labour Party before going to university,
1: so I joined quite young, you know, around that kind of, uh, 1985 86 sort of time um but, but then i went to university and i went once i think to one of the university political meetings and didn't like it because it was a look it looked a bit like a, you know sort of um i don't know something different to what what i thought it would be so i kind of tuned out of that while i was at university but when i graduated it was 1991 uh there was a general election looming. I got very focused on that general election, nineteen ninety-two general election. I wanted that to bring a change of government. Um, kind of was working in my first job in London at the time as a as a, a journalist, which had kind of become another interest through taking English at university, right. not Spanish, uh, English mm. in the end. Um, and you know, I kind of was in that sphere of thinking: well, could I work in journalism? Could I work in politics? And the politics side of it was getting stronger all of the time.
0: Right. Now just go back to that choice of degree then, because you mentioned about the strength of, well, you know, really enjoying Spanish, but then you decided to do English. What was the transition that went through your head at that stage? Bearing in mind, some of our listeners may be thinking of actually starting to go to university.
1: Yeah, um, it's kind of linked to the teachers, really. I mean, I, you know, my, my mum and dad didn't go to university, but were massively supportive. You know, and really were kind of keen that me and my brothers should have high ambitions for for education. But I guess because of that, maybe it was the teachers that had sort of more of an impact in terms of a subject uh, mm-hmm. focus. Um, so initially I you know, mentioned that Spanish was an interest because I was doing well at it and I related to the, the teachers that were mm-hmm. teaching. But then as I went into my A-levels, I mean, I had enjoyed English at school as well and then took A-level English literature. And it, it was then a very... Um, influential teacher really kind of took hold of my (laughs) sort of decision making really and kind of started saying to me look I think you should you should read this poetry or you should watch this and and also you should start thinking about Cambridge and I never would have done that were it not for for uh, Dr Stephen Harrington who was my
0: English teacher a great name name check there yeah. uh, absolutely and that's a he common theme as well common theme in interviews we've done is that teachers are often very inspirational and almost mentor like you know yeah it's interesting there's a very um, well known uh, uh,
1: head teacher or she leads a, a group of schools um in in greater manchester lisa fathers who'll be known to people and uh, she was a regular attender at my Greater Manchester Reform Board, and we realised we had some connection because we went to the same school. But it suddenly transpired that that Stephen had done the same for Lisa as he did for me, and <laughs> we, we took him out for lunch recently in, in recognition of that. You know, the kind of teachers change lives yes. without a doubt, and, um, you know, they, uh, they do that every day. And uh, Dr. Harrington certainly did that for me
0: that's really good to hear so journalism was the first role that you did once you left university is that is that correct uh yes i yes it was i mean uh, if i could try to explain i came back home
1: to um to the lee area having graduated from cambridge a lot of my friends who had very well-connected parents were going to internships at the Times and the Guardian and the BBC, and I would have loved to have done that, but that didn't seem to be on offer, even though my dad said, oh, when you go to Cambridge, it will open all these doors for you, and it never felt like it did, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I came back here and started to apply to Manstreet News and Liverpool Echo and media outlets here, and I got nothing from all of that. The only thing I got was the offer of a, an unpaid role at the Middleton Guardian and that was my first foray into the world of work beyond university fantastic what did that teach you do that role (laughs) that you need money to live on (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I was traveling over to Middleton from the Lee area and that wasn't easy and you can't really um you know sustain something like that for long so I was desperately hoping they'd say one day you know what we're going to find a and that, that that never came in fact I was almost the office whipping boy at times, you know. I thought, like, I don't know, I'm not being paid for this, and it also taught me a bit of standing up for myself because in the end, I walked out of that job because they were, you know, I wasn't being treated uh, properly, and so, yeah, the bit of the political firebrand was in there as well. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then in the end, I um, had wanted to stay here, and this is a theme maybe we can come back to later in the podcast, but I wanted to build my career here in Greater Manchester, mm. in the northwest. And after about eight or nine months of trying, I reluctantly concluded that I couldn't and I would have to move to London yeah. if I was to do a job of the kind that I you know, was, was wanting to do to yeah. get on. Uh, and that you know, that came by the Cambridge University Careers Service. And I ended up working for a group of trade magazines in London, which wasn't my ideal first step, but often isn't people's ideal first step, is it? Their first job
0: beyond study or university or college. Yeah, that's right. It's the, I need some money to, uh, to live off. I need busy. some money. Yeah. I need to get my
1: just foot on the ground. I need some experience on my
0: CV. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's all, uh, you know, it's all part of learning, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a question that I've often been asked by students who, I was a, previously a senior lecturer at uh, Manchester Met, just down the road from where we are now, uh, is how do you get into politics? So, obviously, you've got there. Mid-90s, you started, you know, working in a parliamentary role. And just talk us through that journey from the Middleton Guardian through to getting into Parliament. What did you do? How did you do it? Well, the first
1: thing I would say is there's no single route, is there? There are multiple thousands of routes into politics. So, I guess that's kind of one way in which it separates politics out from other careers. You don't have to have a very clear professional qualification to become a politician, Mm -hmm. Uh, which in some ways is a good thing. So there was no no routine. I I guess luck plays quite a big uh, part in it. You know, Does a door open for you? Does a a chance connection lead to something? Mm -hmm. And in my case, it did. Uh, When I was working for Baltic Publishing, which was the trade or magazine uh, organization I was working for, I was, um, I think I was a staff writer or an assistant editor at the time, and I had to recruit a new editorial assistant. And um, I, re- this shows that I was pretty good at recruitment because I recruited somebody called Eleanor Mills, who went on to become the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, but <laughs> I recruited her to a very lowly role as editorial assistant to Baltic Publishing, uh, spotted the talent. Um, but it was in that situation where she was working really for me at the time, I was the kind of more senior person. Uh, And I was in the office one day, sort of middle, late 1992, bemoaning the fact about how I didn't want to be there I wanted to be working in politics. She suddenly just out of nowhere says, well, my stepmother's looking for somebody. Maybe you might want to apply to work for her. Uh, And her stepmother happened to be somebody called Tessa Jowell, who um, obviously a very well-known politician. And in the end, I did apply and... Cutting long story short, got that, got that job. So uh, I'd put myself, I guess, because of some of the political work I'd done, my awareness into a position where
0: I could get that job, mm. but it was a very big slice of luck that opened that door to parliament for me. So, in that first role then, what type of activities were you expected to do in working for Tessa? So I, I went in really as an all-rounder, really
1: parliamentary assistant, and that can mean a multitude of mm. things, you know, it can mean Writing letters to constituents, answering the phone, all of a sudden journalists here. The, the, the number of calls an MP's office might get are huge, and they can come from you know, all kinds of all kinds of things. So it was I'd, I'd had that bit of work experience that had got me ready um, for it. If I'd gone straight from university, I think I'd have struggled. So I would say to anybody listening to this, you know, it is the case that all experience is good experience, even the Thomas Cook experience. All of it kind of contributes uh, and helps you get ready for a range of scenarios and situations so yeah I think it was probably good that I took on that role around about the age of 24 in 1994 Uh, I just was a bit more ready for it and everything it was going to throw at me Mm. than if I'd just gone in straight from university
0: and was that constituency work that you did for Tessa at the time
1: It, it was a mix actually it was a bit of that but it was a lot of Um, policy work as well Mm -hmm. Tessa was um, on the front bench when it came to health and I started hadn't had a connection to health policy at that point but started to get interested in it and um, yeah so it it was all-rounder really is the way I would uh, the way I would describe it Mm -hmm.
0: So then your journey from working with Tessa as that, you know, the the sort of researcher assistant and so on, what what was the progression? And and particularly, did you have a mentor? You know, who did you look up to? Who supported you in that time? Yeah, well, it's a very big journey
1: there from first
0: arriving in Parliament as a lowly researcher
1: to getting to the Cabinet. You know, I, I guess what I did was work my way up in the opposition years because of what I'd done in opposition was in a position to catch the wave of Labour coming into government, and I did then some some government roles. Which was 97, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's right. And so I was lucky. I mean, I can't come back to that point about luck. You know, the timing was incredible, really, wasn't it? And looking back now, in terms of, you know, it's obviously very rare that you're kind of coming into a, a career path when the party that you're kind of wanting to sort of be involved with is coming just on the verge of coming into government. But that's, that's what happened. Um, and... I guess I'd put myself around and about. I'd worked on the general election campaign. I'd got myself known. People, you know, I, I'd, the one thing I would say to people who are interested in politics is I'd always taken the view that there's no substitute to having your your feet on the ground and knowing what people say on doorsteps and being in touch with the sort of, in the end, politics is about that. It's hearing those opinions. It's hearing those straws in the wind on the doorstep. And then, kind of building from there i i was at university with people who came went straight from university to become speech writers for various politicians and they didn't last so i'd say <laughs> to anyone who's interested there is no substitute at all for the work or on the, the doorsteps listening yeah. to people understanding people that is the stock in trade of any any politician and anyone who misses that bit out will be kind of in a in a position where they may not last So I'd done a bit of that And then so I, as I say I worked through the government year, uh, The opposition years To a point where labour in government I had a role within the government As an advisor But then uh, the big change moment Was when somebody who knew me Who'd worked in 10 Downing Street Who was from my part of the world She was from St Helens actually Just said to me oh I've, I've heard that Lee Might be coming up as a constituency You should think about that and it was like one of those moments in life, in fact, probably the moment in my life from a career point of view, where, you know, the fuzz of your mind when you're a young person of just, oh, I might do this, I might do that. You're kind of like forever, never sure what you want to do. All of a sudden went down to one thing, and I was going to go and do that and be the next MP for Lee. And I went after that with an absolute single minded, because uh, I just, I had this feeling with I grew up there, you know, I played cricket. At, Lee and Atherton, and I, I went to watch Lee rugby when I was a kid. There is no way I'm going to let somebody from outside <laughs> of, of, of the area come in and take that. Uh, that. And it was almost, yeah, I, I definitely went. That was a moment. I was always quite driven and quite determined, but that was where I went up a level. And I think, you know, in any career, people do need to spot when an opportunity knocks, you know, when you've got a chance to perhaps really do what you want to do. And that was such a moment for me. And, you know, I know it sounds easy saying it like this, but, you know, those moments do crop up in people's lives, don't they? And it will be a different context for someone else listening to this. But when you spotted, when you can spot the opportunity that is absolutely, you know, there is a moment, isn't there, to become focused and to become uh, driven, really, about about making that, that happen.
0: Did you, when you go back to sort of when you started getting interested in politics, had the thought of being an MP crossed your mind at the time?
1: Yes, but I would never would have dared uh, say it out loud when I was at school or when I, even when I was at university mm. or even in the early stage of my career. Why? Because I guess the upbringing you have in these parts is that you fear the mickey being taken out of you if you said something like that. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you're at Eton or somewhere else, you know, I'm sure they're all saying that all the time to each other and, you know, I'll be this and I'll be that. Well, it wasn't like that. You know, you wouldn't. Have just gone out there with a big statement like that because you you know you just would have you would have wondered what you know they'd have called you and what would have happened afterwards. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I've always kind of been conscious that, you know, I think the great thing about this part of the world is it roots you, it gives you good values, and it kind of it means you don't get above yourself or you know, arrogant, that kind of thing, but it can almost sort of hold you back from aiming high sometimes as well because of the kind of sense that oh I can't do that or you know I went through university uh, waiting for the tap on the shoulder I'm sure you know many people of my generation and my background would have done the same and mm-hmm. even in parliament you kind of think sometimes that you're gonna kind of come up you're gonna reach your limits and therefore you know you're gonna kind of feel as though you've you're out of your depth and you know that's just sort of in the DNA I guess you know it kind of comes with the comes with the background doesn't it and mm. I, I had to constantly teach myself that, that i wasn't going to hit those limits i could keep pushing on and you know and that was that's always been a, a challenge all my life to be honest I've mm. always kind of had to battle that sense of i can't do that and i've had to convince myself that i can do that and you know it often would be something that would take a few months or even a couple of years, but then slowly I would get into a new environment, feel acclimatised, and then I would be okay, and then the next step. So it was only when I actually put my name forward for Lee that I started to say to people I want to be an MP and was quite, you know, found it able to say that and, yeah. and not fear somebody sort of ripping me to pieces. Yeah.
0: It's that imposter syndrome that, that a lot of people oh, go through, you know. I mean, it sounds awful as a phrase, but virtually everybody goes through it think am i worthy of doing this particular role
1: definitely and I'd say to anyone who who's listening to this who feels a bit of that you know recognize it you'll still feel it nothing i can say will take it away mm. so you'll still feel it mm. and you'll go into a you know a kind of university setting or into a work setting and you'll immediately feel like you have kind of been let in by mistake or that you know you're going to get found out and that that absolutely was a feeling i had all the time what I would say is recognize the feeling, and just take it steady and hold yourself there. You know, get used to that environment, and then you'll start to feel different and, and, and change, and you'll you'll start to kind of kind of own it. You know, I remember I always say this, but you know, I was at Cambridge and I kind of arrived and just was totally disorientated in my first year. I couldn't and didn't think I was going to stay there. I thought I would not be able to last the course. And, you know, as I've always said, you know, I came up against people who just looked more confident and more impressive than anyone I'd ever come across, you know, in my life. And it took me probably until the end of my second year to work out that though they sounded amazing, they were talking complete rubbish. And then when I realised that, I then thought, Right, well I I can I can uh, I can do better than that and I, I but it's it's definitely something I would and I, and I think it's not just a sort of, let's say, a working class thing. I think it, it affects everybody, really, to some degree or other. And I would say just recognise it and work with it and work around it and you'll overcome
0: it. That sort of leads nicely, really, into a topic that is very common in um, courses that's taught at sixth form university and so on. It's about resilience as part of personal development. And, you know, you've faced a lot of that in your time mm. um, through, you know, throughout your career. How do you deal with it how, how do you approach resilience and overcome it yeah
1: I so it, it's easy. it's one of those things where if I just throw off some thoughts it, it might make it sound easy and it's not easy you know you've got to got to work at it um you know I had many kind of reverses in my early years that you know kind of were kind of crushing at the time, and you know you kind of wonder how you're going to come back from it, but you do um you've got to um, kind of just have a kind of sense of what you're about and what you're trying to do. And and once, you know, I've been in my political career where, you know, really bad things kind of happened without going through all of the details, but, you know, really kind of seriously sort of, um, you know, challenging things. What I've always found is it's kind of taking time to then... Refocus and just say, well, what am I trying to do here? You know, why am I in this role, and what is it that I'm mm. trying to achieve? And once you've got that sense back of what it is that you're, you know, then it may, you can always come back and find a new energy or a new, you know, a new, a new sense of purpose. Mm. So, yeah, and you've just again, it's like I was saying about the um, imposter syndrome. You've got to bake in that thing about bouncing back. You know, that's got to be part of what you've got to be ready for and and mm. kind of to sort of price in if you like that this is going to be part of the experience mm. and i just need to know that and therefore not get completely derailed by something when it happens you know, because those things are going to happen mm. and part of kind of making your way is is learning how to deal with those things and 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 keeping them in proportion and you know in my case how would i advise people i'd just say st- stay close to you know the people who will always be there, your family I mean I can't you know I'm okay, not everyone's lucky to be able to, to always draw on family, but you know everyone's got people they trust, and having people like that that you always could just go and say anything to and you know ask for their advice really, really important
0: and, and they'll th- tell you honestly as well I'll they'll tell you honestly trust there
1: yeah yeah and and you know just give you that feedback that. No, no one else will I mean yeah that, that's critical
0: There was one particular episode that stuck in my mind because I remember seeing it all the way through and that was about the Hillsborough situation so you know you spoke at the 20th anniversary and obviously you got booed by the crowd at yeah. the time moving that on and I'm sure people can see it on YouTube and find that out but when it came to the 25th anniversary particularly with all the work that you did over those five years and you were cheered mm-hmm. and quite rightly so Going back to that 20th anniversary, because that that for me is one of the archetypal sort of examples of how do you come out of this situation? How how did you handle that?
1: Well, that, um, if the the person in Downing Street saying go for the seat of Lee, was a sort of career springboard moment, Mm. that was the big crossroads moment in my life. Um, And I think has actually in the end repositioned me if you like to yes, where i am now absolutely. so to explain i'd been in parliament for best part of 10 years and i'd got to the position of culture secretary i'd climbed the greasy pole and um you know i'd, I'd sort of done the right things and been the team player and obviously i've worked my work my way up but um you know as you get older and more and wiser in politics i'd started to have some doubts about some of the things the government was doing i started to become more assertive in challenging some of those things but it was as culture secretary um knowing that the 20th anniversary of hillsborough was looming and knowing i was going to get an invite as culture secretary to speak it almost kicked off a bit of a sort of life crisis for me really um because one well i knew i should be there you know i i I'd grown up with that whole issue you know I was at the night before Hillsborough I was in the pub with mainly Liverpool fans who were my friends who were all going to that semi-final I was going to the other semi-final to watch Everton I was in the same pub when they came back the following night completely traumatized so I knew the story and I knew it you know I remember when the Labour government had come in and promised to reopen Hillsborough and in the end I think basically allowed another stitch up to happen i was driving when i heard the news that it had been dismissed you know the whole case of reopening Mm. it and i remember pulling over on the road i think it was in sheffield where i was like that crying in a hard shoulder because i just you know that the hope that that would actually be reopened at that point 1998 was massive and i remember that being the first real crushing disappointment of the labor government that that i went on to serve in so that had always been there, and then I was, a, you know, as I say, a minister with that in my mind always about that was a failure and we should have done more. So here was me agonising about whether I go to that 20th anniversary having haven't been invited, knowing I'd be walking out to face the people I'd grown up with, representing a government that I knew hadn't done enough. So it was a massive clash of the kind of professional me as I was then, the politician in a suit, versus the personal me, mm that would have been on those terraces shouting at the minister if I wasn't the minister myself. So, you know, it was like uh, one of those, and I, uh, it's this thing that I was saying before about family, you know, I, in the end, had to agonise about this with my family. And the advice from my younger brother, John, was go if you're going to do something for them, i.e. if you're going to step outside of the, the straitjacket of government and try and reopen it again. Mm-hmm. I, when he said them, he meant the families. You know, because, but if you're not going to do that, the best thing wouldn't, would be not to go. And in the end that was that advice cut through with me and I kind of decided that I would go and I would yeah. and I would do something. But in some ways, that was the moment where I sort of took a step on a different path. I was kind of stepping outside of the system, I think, at that point, and you know, was becoming more of the, the Westminster world had never been my natural habitat. And I guess at that point I was starting to take the path out of it at, at, at that point in time. But I I don't regret that. And if there's a sort of life lesson um for people listening again. You know, whatever career you are thinking about, um, I would, you know, I will say you will face not, maybe not not as dramatic as that one because not everyone has to do their job in front of the cop, particularly when you're an <laughs> Everton supporter. It's not easy. Um, so not everybody will face maybe as dramatic a moment as that, but you will face moments like that where you're in a, wor- a workplace or in a job and you're asked to do something that is not what you feel is right or what you're about and you will have to face those, those moments. And I don't think there is a right or the wrong answer because other people might see this differently. All I can say to you is what I think mm-hmm. and what I feel is I took the right course that day because I think at the end of the day, people can spot people who are genuine and acting, you know, the real person, if you like. And that will always come through in any role. Whereas opposed to people who are sort of always doing what you think needs to be done or think you've got to say, or, you know, towing the line for this, that, you know, I know there's an element of that in any career, Yeah. but I think if there's too much of that in the end, you won't come over to people, you won't be you. Mm. And I think at the end of the day, you will succeed the more that you're you, as long as you're, you're you within a sort of a, you know, a constructive and a, and a positive way. So for me, that was, you know, a, a very defining moment. And um, I think one that will define the rest of my career, whatever that ends up being.
0: That's right. And, you know, I think obviously time showed that how much that passion came through and how much you, you know, you really felt that, um, you know, and and saw it through as well, which is, is amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, I
1: look back on it as a moment of when, you know, you do have to, in any role again, sort of commit to something. I think that seems to be to me something that maybe isn't as evident in the modern world at the moment. I think there's a kind of sense that social media gives people a sort of fleeting attention span, but I I would say, you know, i certainly the way I've always gone about things. I, I don't like to just pick something up and drop it. You know, I, I would much rather pick something up and do it and follow it through to its conclusion. And I think that's a good quality, uh, in workplaces, that gets, I think anyway, that gets noticed. I notice it amongst my teams here. You know, the people who, mm. who, you know, it's, when it's more than a job, that gets noticed. If people have a bit of passion for it and say, no, this matters, that gets noticed. Mm. It's not a negative to my mind. That's a positive when I see people do that. And also when, people, when I kind of see someone come back to me months later and say, you know what, you said that and you asked me to, and I've come back and I've really done. Mm. That, I think seeing a job through and really doing it, mm. I think is an under underrated sort of quality that in the modern world and I, and I think we need to you know give that a
0: higher priority again. So with your role currently as Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester then what sort of work um, are you doing perhaps to help younger people in in the area? Yeah so I've very much drawn on my
1: my experience that experience of coming through school you know the the lack of parental connections that didn't get me the door into the times of the Guardian. And then the experience of the Middleton Guardian. You know, I've, I've kind of used all of that um, to help me develop some policies to support, support young people. So one being a free bus pass for all 16 to 18 year olds in Greater Manchester. Um, I just think at that age, you just need to be able to kind of find opportunity wherever it exists in the education world or in the employment world. Doesn't matter, uh, you know. I just wanted that to be there, recognizing how much, I, how hard I found that when I was, you know, in an unpaid role and you know didn't didn't necessarily have all of that, uh, you know, parental kind of uh, income, if you like, to to draw to to draw on. So that's one thing. But another has been um, very much forged through my experience of going to university when a lot of my school friends didn't, and so I've always kind of had this sense of. The academic route in this country is, you know, very obvious. But if you want something other than that, you don't quite get the same clarity and uh, support. Mm -hmm. Um, So I uh, came in and uh, said to the team here that I wanted what I called in a a sort of rudimentary way a UCAS-style system for apprenticeships, you know, a kind of single place where people can go to find out about work as opposed to, you know, academia, um, but then sort of take a path that takes people into technical qualifications and education, which is equally valid as far as I'm concerned, uh, and do it simply within the Greater Manchester world. So what we've also then brought through to support that is GMAX, that is the UCAS style system, Greater Manchester Apprenticeships and Careers Service, which is a single online portal for young people to kind of use to try and get a a line of sight into the modern Greater Manchester economy. Um, And that's something I think is really important because I remember being at school, you know, when those on the university route had it all laid out and those who weren't had to go out and fend for themselves a bit. I think we need to do much more to give all young people, whatever their path is, clarity about how they take that path. Um, And I don't think we do that well enough in this country. So we've made a start here in Greater Manchester, but that combination of... Clarity of what's out there through Gmax, and the the free bus pass that enables you to get to those places is is the policy that we've we've tried to um, develop, alongside something called Meet Your Future, which is um, a work experience scheme that is better than the one I had, which is more about shadowing opportunities. I, I always make sure that people shadow me rather than sit in the corner doing work experience, opening my post, because mm. I want. Yeah. to give that sense of ambition to, and aspiration to young people. But also, let how do, if you can't inhabit a world that you're not in, how do you ever get the feel for that world? And it's back to that tap on the shoulder thing. I think it's incumbent on people in senior positions um, across this city region, but the country, to open up their world to those young people who don't ordinarily have the parental connections to give you a feel for that world. And I think shadowing, work shadowing, is a really important way of of doing that. So I've encouraged the team here to create a work shadowing scheme so that people can can apply. And it's not all, all sort of divvied up on the dinner party circuit, yeah, you know, where one someone's parents know someone else's parents and they get you those off. You know, we need to have a system where anyone from any background can apply for some work shadowing in a in in the academia or in law or in finance or in politics and then get a kind of foothold in those worlds which may seem very remote to them from where they are.
0: Got one final question, which I ask of all my guests is that knowing what you know now with all that experience, what one piece of advice would you give to your younger, perhaps just about to go to Cambridge self? (laughs) It's got to be that
1: point about have a bit more inner confidence about your place and why you're there. You know, you're you're in, when when you're anywhere you've got there for a reason, you've not got there by accident or chance, you've got there because you've got what it takes and I think just always remember that, you know, when you walk into a room, you know, don't do it with like your head down and like trying to find that, you know, walk in with the same confidence as everybody else, you know, and I, and I, you know, you can't just do that straight away but you can do it once you, you know, you can sort of build that sort of uh, confidence, do get your probably your shoulders up a bit more and just don't be in any way daunted by you know people who may have a posher accent or a you know different education or you know life has told me that the more if you can be both rooted and confident that's a brilliant a brilliant place to be and you know I think some of the best people I've met in my career are people who are rooted People are often one or the other. They're rooted and they're not confident, or they're confident and they're not rooted. And I think you know. Try and try and always remember who you are, where you came from, why you're doing it, what you're all about. But hold your own then, and in this, and speak with that confidence when you're in those circles.
0: Andy Burnham, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Let me share something with you. Every time I've listened to this episode as part of the production process, I've learnt something new. And I was there asking the questions. (laughs) Andy's honesty about being resilient and dealing with imposter syndrome was so refreshing to hear. I can't actually imagine many other high-profile leaders being so open. That said, if you are one and you're listening to this, please do get in touch as I'm sure our listeners would love to hear from you. You can tell that he genuinely cares for the development of young people. And if you are a leader or manager, listen back to the approach that he shared with you about job shadowing and work experience. We can all learn from that. Thanks to Andy and his team for making the time for this interview during his very busy schedule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods. You can leave feedback about the episode via various social media channels by searching for Half Hour Mentor. Links to the initiatives mentioned by Andy in the interview can also be found in the show notes. Thanks for listening and until next time, bye for now.